1: Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. Alex, of course, is bouncing off the walls. Alex, tell us why you're bouncing off the walls.
2: Because this is something I did for my A-level and it's exciting because it's a different take on it. So Dan Spencer is an independent researcher of medieval and early modern military history with a focus on, oh wait for it, castles, artillery fortifications and gunpowder weapons. So big bangy things. As Peter Hart <laughs> called them. Hi Dan, how are you doing?
0: Very well, thank you yourself.
2: Oh, yeah, we're all right. We're well, this is the end of a long week of recording, but uh, yeah, we're still going strong. Um, we have a lot of non-British listeners, so we're going to talk about your new book. But I feel we have to get something out of the way first, just to give just to give them a rundown and let us, let them know what's going on and where we are in history. So first of all, I guess, can you set the scene for the Wars of the Roses for us? Why, when, and who?
0: Okay, so the Wars of the Roses is a label given to approximately 30 year period of dynastic conflict and upheaval covering most of the second half of the 15th century between the rival houses of Lancaster and York. The traditional start date is 1455, the first armed clash at the first battle at St Albans, whereas the wars are said to have ended in 1485 with the victory of Henry Tudor at the Battle of Bosworth Field. Uh, in terms of the causes, these included dynastic issues, which really go back all the way to the overthrow of Richard II in 1399 and his replacement by his cousin Henry IV, as well as uh, economic and political problems. So uh, Henry VI was un- a weak king; his government was unpopular, and there were all sorts of issues caused by uh, the defeat of the English in France during the Hundred Years' War, and there was feuding amongst the nobility. So. Historians have divided up the wars, hence the you know, Wars of the Roses, in different ways. But essentially, you start off with Yorkish rebellions in the 1450s, in which Richard, Duke of York, a cousin of the king, who had a firm claim to the throne, sought to claim uh, gain control of the government of Henry VI and to be recognised as his heir. Then in 1459, you have the outbreak of civil war, which leads to a series of battles between both sides. Uh, York attempted to claim the throne, But he was killed at the Battle of Wakefield in 1460. Uh, The Civil War finally culminated in the victory of his eldest son, Edward, Earl of March, at the Battle of Towton and his coronation, as Edward IV, in 1461. Then throughout the 1460s, Edward IV continued to face rebellions from Lancastrians who refused to accept his right to the throne, particularly in the north and in Wales. And these rebels received assistance from the French and the Scots who were more than happy to cause problems for the English. Um resistance was only finally subdued in 1468 with the capture of Harlot Castle in North West Wales. Then in 1469 hostilities are resumed because the Yorkists essentially fall out amongst themselves, leading to an alliance between Richard Neville, Earl of Warwick, known as the Kingmaker, who up until this point was Edward's biggest ally and the Lancastrians. This led to Edward losing his throne in 1470, where Henry VI briefly restored to the throne. For in the following year, Edward returned to England, defeated his enemies at the battle at Barnett and Tewkesbury, and regained his throne. Then from 1472 to 82, you have a period in which Edward IV, in his second reign, was firmly in, in charge on the throne. Uh, by this point, most of the principal Lancastrians are dead. So the wars are seemingly over with the Yorkists victorious, and this allows Edward to engage much more in international politics. And he engages in wars with France and Scotland. Then in 1483, Edward IV rather unexpectedly dies. And once again, this causes problems amongst the Yorkists. Uh, His brother, Richard, Duke of Gloucester, ends up imprisoning his son, uh, Edward's son, Edward V, uh, and claims the throne as Richard III. But he in turn faces lots of opposition to his rule. And eventually he's defeated and killed by Henry Tudor at the Battle of Bosworth, who ascends to the throne as Henry VII. Then from 1485 onwards, there's a series of Yorkist pretenders to the throne. And I stop with the Battle of Stoke in 1487, which is the last pitched battle of the wars.
2: So, Alina, who's tearing, uh, tearing her hair out right now. <laughs> Edward <laughs> the Fools <Sorry.
1: laughs>
2: <Edward laughs> <the Falls laughs> is Henry VIII's granddad. And it's where he gets the big hulking ginger man genes from. <laughs> to put it into context for you. And Edward the V you do know because he's one of the princes in the tower
1: oh, okay that's fine I'm get, I'm getting this it's, as long as we're getting the Edwards right yeah alina has got a bad
2: track record of Edwards yeah she thought Edward the sixth was George the fifth's son so that prompted much laughter and mockery but yeah just so that's where we are in history this Edward IV, the fourth that's the big cheese in all of this is Henry the eighth's granddad and the Edward V is in the tower with his brother so we're okay. just before and then the guy that wins it all eventually in 1485 henry the Seventh. that's henry the Eighth's
1: dad okay i want it i think right. it. i want it is that I, I enough
2: think <laughs> <laughs> is that enough to tell you where we are and where we're at
1: i think so i think um watching what was that 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 program uh the one with the the, the woman and the the White
2: oh Queen, God. is it or something? That's like the that. one. Yeah, I, think, I might have known think... <laughs> it to be some girly historical fiction thing that you would tie this to in your mad brain.
1: That's as that's as close as I'm going to get, I think. But I think I've got it. I okay, think I've got cool. it. Right. Okay. Right. Okay. So my question is, why is your book different?
0: Ah, well, basically, it's um, it's this story which is told from a different perspective. So I'm focusing on castles and their role in the Wars of the Roses and it's probably worth our mentioning what a castle is. Yeah,
2: give us a definition in at this period ah. in
0: history. Ah well okay. So the word castle derives from the Latin words castro or castellum, meaning fortress, and they had they were introduced by the Normans to the British Isles in the eleventh century. Now, the most basic and traditional definition is that these were private fortified residences. So these are private as opposed to public fortifications. So they're different to, let's say, urban town walls. Um, and they were fortified structures built in a particular style. So they often had, you know, walls, towers, gatehouses, ditches, you know, all those sorts of things. But they were also residential in nature. So at the very least, they're dual purpose buildings, not simply forts. So they're also important as um, centres of estates, local administration, justice and status symbols. So by the time we get to the mid-1450s, the Walls of the Roses, they've been around in medieval society for a long time. Um, and these are sort of very large, visually imposing structures uh, which sort of dominated their landscape. And they're also very different as well. So some of them are very old structures that incorporated old and new architectural elements and that been gradually adapted over time, whereas others were much more uh, new ones. In terms of numbers, we're talking about in the hundreds, by the mid-15th century, whereas in previous centuries, they've been as high as in the thousands. And they were generally speaking owned by a uh, king, nobility, various bishops, even some monasteries, and the gentry. So basically, the ruling landed elites owned these structures. And uh, they vary between... Sort of say major royal and aristocratic castles such as uh, say the Tower of London, Kenilworth, uh, Annick, Ludlow, you know, the really sort of famous, well known ones, mm-hmm. to much more modest, smaller ones such as uh, Case and Bodiam, which were owned by the gentry. And in this era, we still have some castle building going on, uh, but it's much more focused on, you know, building re- and rebuilding existing sites.
2: I think. So the standard historical line, I think, at this point, is that the role of the castle um, is in decline, or the military value of a castle is in decline by this point in the mid-15th century. So are they important in the Wars of the Roses?
0: Yes. So I think the view is that the campaigns of the Wars of the Roses were dominated by decisive battles in which, you know, castles played a very minor role. That's been what most people have really thought in the past. Now, this argument does have some some substance to it because it's actually quite an unusual era, particularly in um, medieval history, for the frequency with which battles took place. Um, nevertheless, my argument, slightly more nuanced one, is that um, this really doesn't tell the whole story, as there were many campaigns in which castles were used in a significant way, and also that the individual wars you know, that made up the Wars of the Roses were all quite different. So in some of them, uh, castles played a more important role in some of them as opposed to the others.
1: Is it fair to say that you're challenging a broader assumption here that castles are no longer important in the late Middle Ages?
0: Yes, I mean, that's partly part of my sort of um, broader argument, really. So, generally speaking, the late Middle Ages are seen as a uh, an era in which they're in decline and transition, um, in which they're no longer really being used so much in warfare and they're becoming more important in terms of being resonances and status symbols. Now, I think this view has some has some um validity to it. because um, gradually what happens by the early Mon period is you see a separation. In the uh, the military and residential function of the castle, so you end up with forts and country houses. Yet, I think in terms of the context of the Wars of Roses, this is only partly relevant because they continue to be used in warfare in the Wars of the Roses and actually still into the 16th century. And beyond.
2: One thing I really like about your book, you've taken, this gives you an opportunity to shed light on some more, some of the more obscure campaigns in the Wars of the Roses, doesn't it? So can you tell us about them and how castles come into play?
0: Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, the big battles, say Towton in 1461, Bosworth in 1485 get a lot of attention and they did even, you know, at the time from the contemporary sources. But uh, I personally find some of the more minor campaigns more interesting. Uh, particularly ones that took place in the more remote parts of the kingdom, such as in Wales and northern England. So one of my favourite episodes is the Yorkish invasion of Wales in the summer of 1461. So this took place in the aftermath of the decisive Yorkish victory at Towton in spring of that year. So by this point, the VI and most of his remaining supporters had fled to Scotland, but the Lancastrians still controlled many castles across the kingdom, especially in Wales. So, uh, Edward IV annotated the of subduing Wells to some of his most trusted supporters, which they duly carried out. Now, the narrative sources have very little to say about this campaign, so it's been generally characterised by historians as being effectively a whitewash, the Yorkists invading Wells, and quickly capturing you know, all the major castles. Uh, so what we need to do, really, is um, recreate it by using other sources, which is what I've done by using, let's say, mainly administrative and financial records. And these sources show that it was actually a very mixed picture, uh, what happened. So essentially some places surrendered very quickly to the Orchis, so such as the castles of Pembroke and Tenby in the southwest, whereas others in, um, particularly in the north, such as Woodland and Conwy, were only taken after sieges. And, um, other areas I'm particularly interested in are, um, the state of civil war between 1459 and 61. So after the Yorkist victory at the Battle of Towton in 1460, uh, the country was effectively divided. So the Yorkists were dominant, dominant in the south and the Midlands, whereas, um, the Lancastrians were dominant in the north and in Wales. Uh, the Yorkists had Henry Six, um, but their opponents were the And so you effectively have a Cold War, um, I suppose effectively a sort of Cold War era before we get to, uh, the Battle of Towton. And then another area that I'm very interested in is uh, in the years 1461 to 4, in which you have a protracted struggle for um, northern England, especially Northumberland, in which uh, castles played an important role.
2: Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side?
1: So a standard nerdy question from both of us, because we like to be nerdy on this podcast. Um, let's be fair. Tell us about your sources. And did you make any interesting discoveries?
0: Yes, yeah, sure. So I've tried to use as many sources as possible. Uh, some of these have been well known. So they've been used by other historians previously, uh, whereas others haven't been. And I think this is one of the reasons why the role of the castle has been undervalued It's due to the nature of the sources we have. Uh, So quite frankly, I think many of the narrative sources we have for this particular period aren't as good as ones from, let's say, earlier or later centuries. So some of the um, the most useful narrative sources we have were written by, um, effectively by members of the London civic elite. Um, These authors were very well informed, but unsurprisingly, they were very London-centric in their focus. So what this means is certain campaigns and episodes tend to be overlooked, So um, to sort of rectify this, really, I've tried to sort of look at uh, other types of sources that perhaps haven't received quite as much attention. Um, So in particular, um, I've been using financial accounts for this. So ones compiled by, let's say, uh, clerks working for the exchequer, um, which is the main royal treasury of the English crown this time, or in royal lordships. And uh, these sorts of documents have all sorts of interesting information about um, items expenditure. So we get information on, let's say, the wages of soldiers or the purchasing military equipment. And in some cases, these type of records provide the only information we have about certain campaigns and episodes. So I spent a lot of time in the past going to the National Archives, trawling through all these sorts of documents, trying to find uh, interesting nuggets of information. So one of my personal, I think, favourite Discoveries really uh, was when I was looking at the financial accounts of the Chamberlain of Chester and Flintshire uh, for 1461 to 2, and these reveal that Sir William Stanley, who was a rather interesting character in the Wars of the Roses, mm-hmm. uh, they, show that, um, they show that he was given the task of subduing Lancastrian resistance in North East Wales, and it includes some really interesting details about uh, Hittetone to unknown siege of uh, Richland Castle. Um, they showed that he carefully planned the operation and he actually sent two men from his headquarters in Chester to Warwickshire to seek the advice of the king for the, for the forthcoming operation. Um, and they also showed that the siege involved a force of nearly 500 men accompanied by artillery. Um, he besieged the castle for 13 days after which the surrender, surrenders surrendered. Sorry, tongue tied there. The Fenders surrendered, uh, with, um, Nicholas who was the commander of the Lancastrian garrison, and the other members, um, of the garrison then being sent to Chester before being sent on to London with, uh, Stanley. Um, other ones include, I found a letter, uh, which was sent in the name of Edward of Westminster, I'm afraid another Edward, uh, who was the young king, young son of the king to his father, Henry VI, in 1460, which shows that in the aftermath of a Yorkist rebellion in the master of Wales that the Lancastrians were sort of placing multiple garrisons in the castles they occupied in that region. Uh, one of the most frustrating things, though, is the evidence we get is often rather incomplete. So I found an intriguing petition which refers to the storming of Conwy Castle in northwest Wales, in 1461, but it's very unclear exactly what transpired.
2: I love it. Uh, what, it's, what for you, in all the stuff you found, what would you say is the crowning moment for the castle in the Wars of the Roses?
0: Yeah, I think probably my favourite episode is, um, the siege of Bamra Castle in 1464. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it's the very, it's actually a very, I suppose, exceptional siege in that, um, the besiegers actually captured it by storming it. And we, we have a very we have a wonderfully detailed narrative account of what went on. Um so this account basically describes how um effectively the Yorkists um you know approached the castle. They sent two heralds to demand the surrender of the garrison, um, who offers letters of pardon to all the all defenders, bar the um the uh the um the leader of the Lancastrian uh, garrison who had basically been too much of a turncoat to be, um, offered that opportunity. Um, and then what happened basically is, um, Sir Ralph Grey, who was defending the castle, refused this offer. So the Yorkists opened up, uh, their guns on the castle, which, um, caused, you know, um, quite a lot of damage to the fortifications. So we got, a, so it describes how bits of masonry were flying off into the seas below. Um, and then under cover of this um, firepower, the Yorkets launched a full scale assault um, and they gradually overwhelmed the defenders and captured it. Um, they took um, Sir Ralph Gray, as I said was the commander of the and Garrison prisoner, rather unfortunately for him, because then he was then taken 150 miles southwards to Doncaster, where he was put on trial for treason and um, was beheaded. No one wants to be
2: sent to Doncaster either, do they? <laughs> so I've just made enemies all over the north of England as well. Of all the places Ooh. they're going to round you up and send you, that would not be my choice. To be fair to Doncaster, I've only ever seen it because I've been through the train station on my way further north on a train. I'm sure it has many charms.
1: I, I, do you know what, I was going to say something really witty there, but I'm going to avoid that. But um... so then you remembered
2: <laughs> it's you. So <laughs> then I remember it's me, and I can't
1: say anything with you.
2: Ah, so, Sorry, um, sorry, Dan. This is just what we're like. No, that's fine. <laughs>
1: <Sorry>. <laughs> not be afraid. Don't yep. be afraid. Um, Dan, have you um have you visited any cool castle? Let's start again. Have you visited any cool castle? See, so tongue tied again. Um, what's actually left that people can see?
0: Oh, what, are these castles? Yeah. Uh, it depends. I mean, I've tried to visit as many of them as possible when I was researching this book. It really varies, because there are some places which don't effectively nothing survives. For others, yeah. um, you know, they've continued into, they've been used, you know, up until the modern day. Um, so Annick Castle in Northumberland, that's which in the in the 15th century belonged to the Percy family, still belongs to the Percy family.
2: It's Hogwarts, um, isn't it?
0: It is. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that suddenly occurred to me. There if I you go, Alina. That, yes. Now
2: she's interested. <laughs> yeah. And it Castle Yay. is Hogwarts. Well, Yay the Harry of Hogwarts that aren't yeah. CGI.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, a lot of castles in this country that are in ruins, mm-hmm. um, and a lot of that really, I suppose, dates... Well, it, it's actually a problem. Due th- it actually comes from the 17th century, so during the um, the English Civil Wars. As a result of that, a lot of them were deliberately destroyed but even so though even with those castles um the ruins look very nice I'm actually quite a fan of romantic ruins as it were yeah um, and
2: sometimes the ruins are cool
0: yeah exactly I much prefer, prefer ruins really to stately homes if I'm, if I'm being honest
2: uh, see I've got a thing about photographing monasteries of which thanks to Henry VIII there are many <laughs> ruined
0: <laughs> monasteries yeah
2: So you fly the flag for recognising the impact of castles, but you are a proper historian, so I want to give you the opportunity (laughs) to measure that because I know you wouldn't come on here and go, castles are amazing and they were the most important thing in the whole world. Castles aren't just about sieges, are they? Um, They play a wider supporting military role in the Wars of the Roses.
0: Yeah, definitely. So um, to go back to sieges, I I basically made it, I tried to count up how many there were. Okay. So So I found that there were at least 36 definite ones that took place over this sort of 30-year period.
2: So, but it is significant, isn't it? And it is something that's been missed.
0: Yes. Um, I think, generally speaking, people have sort of recognised maybe a few sieges, perhaps, but then thought, well, these are exceptional events.
2: Yeah. So I'm I think... a First World War historian, though, yeah. and I know that all of the stately homes in France basically were seized as headquarters and things. Were they doing that with castles?
0: Oh, yeah, yes, yeah, certainly. Um, yes, and in fact... Even beyond the sieges, um, I found evidence of lots of castles being garrisoned. Okay. Um, so, and due to the problems with the evidence, I suspect the figure is actually even higher. So, I found evidence for at least sixty-five, but I reckon you know that's an underestimate. Hmm. But yeah, they were certainly being used um, as headquarters in campaigns. So, uh, Kenilworth Castle in Warwickshire uh, was used as the royalist headquarters for uh, campaigns in the fourteen fifties. Um, Sometimes you even had occupied castles being used in this way. So in the winter of 1462, uh, Richard Neville, the kingmaker, um, was rather busy. He was um, from his headquarters at Walkworth Castle. He, on a daily basis, was said to supervise the sieges of um, the nearby castles of Annick, Bamburgh, and Dunstanborough. So effectively, the Yorkists were besieging three castles at the same time. And he had allocated the lieutenants to besiege each one. And then on a daily basis, he was supposed to be riding between each castle to check how they they were getting on, as it were.
1: I don't know. I don't know. I'm I'm trying to wrap my head around all of this. So, <laughs> this is a war. <laughs>
2: these wars, this 30 year period, didn't exist in her head until 20 minutes ago when we started
0: talking to you. So she's a bit like, oh.
1: That's okay. No, I know. It is,
0: it is complicated. <laughs> I, even when I was writing it, to be honest, it's difficult sometimes to keep track of exactly what's going on.
1: Yeah. <laughs> okay. So. Castles are not just significant in a military context either
0: though, are they? Oh no, 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 completely not, no. Um, um they were very highly prized by the landowning elite. Um and it wasn't just because you know, they were sort of off economic value, so they're you know the centres of you know these grand estates, but also because they were of you know great symbolic importance as well. Um so frequently the aristocracy were trying to get hold of these castles, and actually that's what contributed to some of the Some of the basically um, the underlying causes that led to the the outbreak of war in the 1450s. So in the 1440s and 50s, you had um, um, effectively feuds amongst the magnates. So the Percy's and the Nevilles, who I mentioned before, um, they effectively were in dispute over certain castles. So um, one example of this is a wrestle castle in Yorkshire, which is um, something they were both very keen to get hold of. And um, sometimes you actually had, effectively, private wars taking place because different landowners were trying to get hold of the same castle. Uh, so in 1469, you had um, the Duke of Norfolk laying siege to case the castle. It's not really part of the Walls of the Roses per se, but effectively mm. he was trying to get hold of the castle for using um, force. Um, and typically... Kings would try to um, reward their followers by, you know, dishing out castles they'd confiscated from their enemies. Um, so Edward the Fourth um, effectively made William Herbert his viceroy in India. Uh, I say India, in Wales. Yes.
1: <laughs> Going forward, a couple <laughs> hundred years. But, uh,
0: yes. Whereas um, effectively, he used the Nevilles to um, effectively act as his lieutenants in the north. Um, and also, as I mentioned before, you still have some castle building going on in this period. So, uh, for instance, William Lord Hastings um, built Kirby Moxlow uh, in uh, Leicestershire. Um, and then similarly, you have um, William Lord Herbert carrying out major works at uh, Raglan Castle uh, in Monmouthshire. Um, so I'm not sure if that answers your question.
2: So. <laughs> yeah there's there's lots going on isn't it? I'm trying to think of my favourite castle I don't think it's Wars of the Roses. It would just be Windsor Because they do all the work there in the Royal Archives. So I'm completely biased towards Winter Castle um, Which obviously is lucky enough to have been massively looked after But I do remember a school trip to Rochester as well Which is quite cool Because that's all
0: crumbly isn't it I, I am a fan of Rochester yeah
2: mm.
1: Do you want to know what my new thing is now in Poland? Go on I'm actually Get this Are you ready? I'm actually
2: I'm looking scared. at castles. Oh, you look-
1: are? Oh, yeah, wow. I am. I am. And there's so many beautiful castles out here from all various, you know, medieval to... Yeah,
2: I went to one. Later.
1: Near Krakow. <laughs> yeah, they're so so beautiful. So I've actually got interested in castles. So thank you to Alex, who's pushed me towards that.
2: Yeah, he's bludgeoned <laughs> her with just enough medieval history. Now we've just got to get you into boats.
1: That would never happen.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Dan, tell everybody what the book's called and how they can get hold of a copy.
0: Yeah, so it's called The Castle in the Walls of the Roses, um, and it's been published by uh, Pen & Sword. Mm -hmm. So um, you can get it from their website or uh, Amazon.
2: Perfect. Or get your local independent bookshop to order it in. Ah,
0: of course, even better. Yeah, because
2: we are are on a little obsessive mission now to make people go to their local bookshop. But thank you so much for coming on to give us a different slant on the Walls of the Roses. Well, to give Alina any slant on the Walls of the Roses. Uh, (laughs) It's just a nice little introduction as well.
0: Uh, Thank you for having me on the
2: show. We are now on YouTube. We are posting all of our new episodes on there and we have our own channel and we are gradually posting all of the back episodes because we have been made aware of the fact that you can only find the last hundred on some platforms. So you can go and listen to your heart's content and laugh at the cartoons and have a great time. So do go over there and subscribe. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus, and we would really appreciate it, as we
1: would love to do so. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more